The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Happy International Pronouns Day. Yes, the third Wednesday of October is apparently International Pronouns Day. I don't know whether it's a statutory holiday, but feel free to take the day off. Your boss would have to be suicidally nuts to call you on it. Listen, listen, it's not a big deal. It's just good manners to use a person's preferred pronouns. Oh, no, wait, sorry. The term preferred pronouns is now hate speech, you hate to you. Stonewall. The UK's leading LGBT QWERTY organisation instructs, quote, the phrase preferred pronouns is no longer used. Terms like this make it sound like someone's gender is up for debate. Indeed. And of course, the great thing about the Western world in 2021 is that very little is up for debate. Yesterday, my old friends at The Spectator published a column headlined, We Need to Talk About the Killing of David Amos. That's the first sitting member of parliament to be slaughtered by a Somali jihadist. Whoops, sorry, a quote, British national. Anyway, the media and the politicians have been at pains to blur the reality of what happened to Sir David. So the specky ran a piece called We Need to Talk About the Killing of David Amos and then immediately shut down the comment section because specky readers were a bit too keen to talk about it. China is denying, not very convincingly, that it now has space nukes. Space nukes. But America's crack military is on the case. It's released a video of a new non-racist march in which the female drill sergeant drills her men, if you'll forgive the expression, her men, all wearing masks in the great outdoors, all wearing their COVID masks. The female drill sergeant drills her men as follows. Remember MLK. Remember MLK. He tried to lead the way. He tried to lead the way. But he was shot one day. But he was shot one day. Yeah, that's just what an army that can't win any wars needs. I think the British army got here first. Right. Now let's see something decent and military. Some precision drilling. Squad! Camp it up! Who get her whoops? I've got your number that you couldn't afford me, dear, to free. I'll scratch your eyes out. Don't come the brigadier bit with us, dear. We all know where you've been, you military fairy. We can't win against Afghanis, but we've got the hardest trannies. China has space nukes and is already a presence at America's state-of-the-art abandoned Bagram Air Base. But the U.S. military has its first, quote, transgender four-star officer in American history. Rachel, possibly world history. Rachel Levine, the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, has been appointed a four-star admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Court. Wait, wait a minute. Rachel... Levine is transgender? Wow, really? That's amazing. Uh, are you sure about I, Are you sure? I don't believe that for a moment. 
Really? Seriously? Well, all I can say is uh, if ever I transition, I want the same doc who did her. That's one for the old trophy wall in his office. Are you you absolutely certain about... Well, you could knock me over with the cervix. I'm stunned. Anyway, Rachel Levine is now a four-star admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service Commissioned Corps which is apparently one of the eight branches of the U.S. Armed Forces. Eight branches. Uh, The others are, uh, let me see, the Army, the Air Force, the Afghan Translator Liaison Corps, the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed Guantanamo Courthouse Security Force, the SEAL Team 6 Unvaccinated Special Forces Early Retirement Processing Division. I forget the rest. Anyway, just as the U.S. Secretary of Education is the only education minister in the Western world with his own SWAT team, so the U.S. Public Health Service is apparently the only public health bureaucracy with its own navy. So Rachel Levine is now an admiral. Are you, are you really sure? Are you really sure she's trans? I don't believe a word of it. Well, if that's a transgender woman, the sooner we get rid of these lousy cis women, the better. That's all I can say. Do you know the Robert Benchley story? I was on a BBC show with his grandson many years ago, Peter Benchley, the guy who wrote Jaws, and he told this one. Robert Benchley had had a very liquid lunch, uh, so he rolls out of the Algonquin and says to the doorman, call me a cab. And the doorman is not, in fact, a doorman, and his uniform is not that of a doorman. So he replies, do you mind, sir? I'm an admiral in the United States Navy. So Benchley says, in that case, call me a battleship. Don't try that with Admiral Levine. And whatever else you do, call her a woman. Uh, China now has the world's largest surface fleet, but Admiral Levine is already going full thoroughly modern Millie. She's only been in the military for 48 hours, but she already has three ribbons on her handsome, curvaceous bosom. The U.S. Public Health Presidential Unit citation, the Commissioned Corps Training Ribbon, Uh, That's where you get uh, trained on how to sew your ribbon on. Uh, And, of course, the COVID-19 Pandemic Medal ribbon. The COVID-19 Pandemic Medal. Do you get a new ribbon uh, for every variant, or do they add a bar, like on uh, Commonwealth, uh, British Commonwealth Military Awards? What was that old Democrat bumper sticker? It will be a great day when our schools have all the money they need and the Pentagon has to hold a bake sale to buy a bomber. I'm not actually persuaded the Pentagon is competent enough uh, to pull off a bake sale. And you can find the craziest grade school in the country, the one that makes the kindergartners do quilting squares of their pronouns. And it isn't as crazy as this laughingstock military. The reason the left isn't out chanting defund the army is because this is the army they want. There are now so many 27-star generals with ribbons from shoulder to scrotum. Oh, look, here's the ribbon I got for abandoning Bagram Air Base and leaving all that weaponry for the Taliban's new Chinese friends who are already there. The military that hasn't won a war in three quarters of a century but accounts for 40% of the military spending on the planet, most of which apparently goes on medals. Uh, Breaking news, there are now so many 27-star generals with ribbons from shoulder to scrotum that the supply chain in Chinese-made ribbons has completely broken down. Container ships full of ribbons are sitting off the California coast waiting to dock.
General Thoroughly Modern Millie has just awarded himself the Silver Star for Best Congressional Testimony. All together now. There are those, I suppose, that think they're mad. Heaven knows the world has gone to rack and to ruin. What we once thought odd and Sodom and Gomorrable, they now invoke as woke and quite adorable. But the fact is every general now is thoroughly modern. Intersectionality, every general now is anxious to trend. No need for reality, just screw the mission and transition instead. You raised your pride flag right up that pole before you fled. I'm the chiefs of staff, the world is so cozy. If it seems like agia, just because they blew another big war. Don't be so white ragia, so long. Straight shooting guy, he's wokier than thou. So beat the drums, cause here comes the really modern millionaire. Central Command submitted a variety of plans that were briefed and approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, and the President. These plans were coordinated, synchronized, and rehearsed. There was nothing that I or anyone else saw that indicated a collapse of this army and this government in 11 days. Every general now is thoroughly modern. Lobbyists are floodier. Every general now is letting it fly. LGBT quotia, oh dude. Stop sniggering, you're triggering them. He's due at West Point to teach systemic racism. He don't need no book by General Clausewitz. Way too dialectical, Ibram X. Kendi in every kid bag. Won't rest till he's wrecked it all. White rage is all the rage. He's on it and how. So beat the drums, cause here comes thoroughly modern. Handmaid's Tale by my compatriot Margaret Atwood is about a dystopian America run by misogynist Christian fundamentalists. <laughs> oh, boy, I wish. Uh, and it was seized on by American lefties as the perfect distillation of the Trump era. If you recall, during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. They had all these women protesting at the Supreme Court while garbed in the red robes that Ms. Atwood's handmaids wear. Of course, uh, when you see a crowd in red robes uh, outside a courthouse, you automatically assume they're Canadian or uh, English or Australian judges. So I couldn't understand uh, what the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench was doing at the US Supreme Court, but apparently they were there protesting Brett Kavanaugh. Anyway, Trump's gone now, so Margaret Atwood has served her purpose. Yesterday, she tweeted a link to a Rosie DeMano column in the Toronto Star. Why can't you say woman anymore? Margaret Atwood, why can't you say woman anymore? And the Twitter reaction was exactly as you'd expect, quote, Oh, look, your angry language is finally starting to include people like me. Disappointed in you, but not shocked. I hear J.K. Rowling is looking for friends. You can sit at her table. Uh, there's plenty of space at that table. A new poll in the Daily Mail has 
in very interesting poll, actually. It had all the usual questions about politics. And then uh, it moves on to more interesting topics. Question, is it right to say that only women have a cervix? Is it right to say that only women have a cervix? Yes, say 50%. So in 2021, you cannot get a majority of poll respondents to say that a cervix is a thing that only women have. To be sure, a big chunk of those respondents are merely purporting to believe that men have a cervix because they're savvy enough to realise that that's the correct answer. And although these polls are supposed to be anonymous, who knows where all this info winds up? A mere 50% of poll respondents are willing to say that only women have a cervix. That's late 2021. What do you think the percentage is going to be next year? Or in five years? On the continent, three young ladies who failed to qualify for Miss France are suing the beauty pageant for discrimination based on their appearance. I'm surprised this is even necessary. We've mentioned that Playboy cover with the gay guy in the bunny outfit. They did that voluntarily. They did that to themselves. No one had to sue Playboy to get them to pick the first male playmate. And you can bet that if, say, Admiral Levine were to enter the Miss America pageant, the judges would be falling over themselves to give her the crown. Yes, indeed. There she is, Admiral America. Admiral Levine's fellow four-star, Colin Powell, was fully vaccinated but died of the same virus Miss Levine got a ribbon for. I wasn't a big fan of General Powell's, but in one of my books, I note something he said. I think it's in the undocumented Mark Stein, might be in some other book. I note something he said in his autobiography uh, that always gave me a chuckle. He said his favourite music is Andrew Lloyd Webber. When the book came out, the Reverend Jesse Jackson commented, is this guy even black? I don't know how to love him. I don't know how to love him. With all the interchangeable genitalia, that's a more common problem than it used to be. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. I mentioned this poem the other day in a column on England's demographic transformation. And Josh Passell, a Mark Stein Club member from Massachusetts, said, if it doesn't make you cry even a little, you're not human. So I thought we'd do the full poem here. As you know, I find the cult of multiculturalism so bloody boring. It's made everywhere the same. You go to any great Western capital and basically everybody under, what, 50 appears to be from somewhere else and you can have a pizza or a kebab or a pseudo macchiato made by someone who might be a corpulent Afghan or a svelte Tongan and the more diverse we get the more it's all the bloody same as I've said many times I miss the Europe of my youth I speak as an ethnic mongrel who uh, visited family in my mother's country of Belgium many times as a child. And I loved the way you could travel 50 miles in any direction and the language would be different and the architecture would be different and the cuisine would be different and the people would be planted in the soil. 
One of the biggest and most total changes of the last 50 years is that we have utterly severed the connection between man and the land, a connection taken for granted by almost all societies through human history. Uh, that whether you are a Highland Scot or a Provencal, there is something in that soil that shapes you. Now every Western nation is gate 27 at the airport. It's no more than whoever's standing around in it, so that a guy clutching a machete and yelling Allahu Akbar is presented with a straight face by headline writers as a Norwegian national or Minnesota man. So these words by Rupert Brooke touch me in ways he could never have intended, in part because the severing of that link between a people and its land is something he would never have imagined could happen in an ancient kingdom. He wrote this poem in 1914 at the start of the Great War, and by the time it was published, he was dead. Nothing splendid or heroic, as Josh noted, he shipped out a blighty with the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force at the end of February 1915, got bitten by a mosquito, and died in April of septicemia en route to Gallipoli. He was 27 and is buried on the Greek island of Skyros. And so his poem became a self-fulfilling prophecy. There is a corner of a foreign olive grove that is forever England. First published in the month of his death by Rupert Brooke, the soldier. If I should die... Think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam. A body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think, this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less. Give somewhere back the thoughts by England given, her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter learnt of friends, and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. A poem from Me to You, The Soldier, by Rupert Brooke. I haven't read Brooke in a long time, not since at a very young age, a dear friend of mine and I were invited to put together a stage review of his life and work. And my chum, who adored Brooke, wrote some lovely music, and I'm not sure my contribution was quite up to hers, and so partly out of self-embarrassment, I haven't read much Rupert Brooke in the years since, and indeed in The Prisoner of Windsor, our contemporary inversion of The Prisoner of Zender, there is a scene in which a sneering globalist mocks the last lines of Brooke's poem on the old vicarage at Granchester, stands the church clock at ten to three, and is there honey still for tea? I have no desire for honey at tea, but I am a little envious of Brooke's unalloyed love for a lost England. Granchester is two miles south of Cambridge, where, as I wrote the other day, 58.2% of all births in 2020 
were the mothers born outside the UK, Cambridge. Rupert Brooke rests in his Greek olive grove a pulse in the eternal mind, giving back the thoughts by England given, and England itself is the foreign field. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. My column attracted an awful lot of comments from Mark Stein Club members. Uh, and I'm just going to rustle through a few of them here quickly. Charles Elkins, a Louisiana member of the Stein Club, says, Didn't the Roman Empire end with the age of migration or the barbaric invasions, depending on your point of view? Doesn't it feel like the Western Alliance... Europe and the English-speaking world is crashing in nearly the same way. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, although certain wrinkles are interesting, like the abolition of biological sex, Charles. Uh, The Barbarian Invasions, by the way, was a film made by Denny Arcand with my friend Dorothy Berryman. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards. And the interesting thing, although in some ways it's about uh, the Quebec Health Service, the subplot of the film is the collapse of the Catholic Church in Quebec and uh, the contradictions that a lifelong Marxist, lifelong socialist uh, faces at the end of his life. And it is interesting to me that Monsieur Arcand, uh, who I haven't seen in an awful long time, uh, chose to give the film the title Les Invasions Barbares, The Barbarian Invasions. That is where we are. Andrew writes from Calgary, Alberta. It's sad to see the Anglo-Celts going the way of the Aramaeans, ancient Egyptians, Parsis, Cushites, Scythians, Scythians, and countless other... <laughs> Lost nations who once contributed so much to civilization. Hey, let them go. Who needs Anglo-Celts, you may think. But what is really sad is that nothing has changed in 1,400 years. The British people replacing the Anglo-Celts are Islamic. And soon the memory that pre-Islamic peoples ever lived in Britain will be erased. Islam is the rubbish bin that stands at the bottom of the civilizational cliff we've dived off. Um, in the undocumented Mark Stein, uh, I, uh, I, I sort of invert what you've said there, Andrew, and say that Islam is king on a field of corpses. Uh, everywhere it takes hold, it drives out everything but Islam. As you can see, if you visit the uh, Jewish cemetery in Tangiers, or if you go to once vibrant, thriving, multicultural societies such as Alexandria, uh, the 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 dour, dead, dull uh, imposition of Islam is what follows in all those places. What follows multiculturalism? Dale Owens writes from Italy. French journalist and possible presidential candidate Eric Zemmour. You may uh, recall I mentioned Monsieur. I mentioned Monsieur Zemmour a couple of times now. I think I mentioned him in last weekend's Mark Stein show and in Monday's column. Eric Zemmour 
is now openly speaking about the great replacement of indigenous Europeans with Africans and Asians. And apart from a few fines for hate speech, he is so far getting away with it. He is shifting the Overton window and he is simply articulating the concerns of millions of people who dare not say what they think outside their families and circles of close friends. We must learn from the left. We must change the culture and then the politics and the law will be changed as a result. People like Zamor are taking the first step in the right direction and hitting the socio-cultural nail on the head. Talk about the Great Replacement and make it enter the public consciousness. Then the cultural dike built by the left can be breached. Dale Owens, a Welshman living near Milan, Italy, who adds, to get out of this mess, the West needs a rebirth of romantic nationalism. Uh, unlike in the past, however, we need an international, an international of nationalists, a sort of common turn of patriots, which is a good way of uh, putting it, uh, a, an, a, a, an international nationalism. Uh, that's a very good. As to the Great Replacement, I, mean, I think I first used that word. Uh, almost 20 years ago now. And I actually wrote a book about demographic uh, replacement. Um, and Tucker Carlson, I had Tucker Carlson on Fox News primetime. And Tucker, uh, quite unprompted by me, brought up the subject of the Great Replacement. The, que- the, the thing about it is, it's not good enough. So we, you know, in a sense, we've done our bit because uh, immediately after that, people called for us to be fired and never to work again and all the rest of it. And now the word replacement is bad. Somebody actually quoted me. I, th- I saw this on uh, Twitter or something. I said the word replacement in like 2003. And someone has just uncovered it now. I think I don't even think it was in particularly a, a an immigration or a demographic context. But apparently, the word replacement is becoming unutterable. Look, it's no good. All the people who talk about this just with their friends uh, or their close family, uh, we need to actually get it out there. It's not enough to leave it to Tucker or Monsieur Zamor or whoever, to really move the Overton window. Every time you can't, you're told you can't say something by these guys, to use another old line of mine, uh, you have to reprise it uh, and say it again and again and again. What is going on in demographic terms is unprecedented in any uh, society not at war. In, a, in other words, the numbers, the numbers you see in, say, Brussels, the numbers you see in, uh, the, the, in Germany, these are uh, a scale of transformation that is not normal. It's weird. No, no other soci- society has voluntarily extinguished itself in full knowledge of what it is doing. Adam says it's an interesting question regarding the fertility collapse. Given that most of the population population consists of normies who aren't aware of any of these issues at a conscious level, loathing a Britain circa 2050 as an outpost of bleepholistan doesn't seem likely to explain the lack of procreation. If I had to guess the primary reasons of the collapsing birth rate, I would guess astronomical housing costs, male a that's a valid point. You have to be able, if you want to have a family, you've got to be living in a uh, in in an abode that can accommodate a family that's valid male alienation from women due to feminism and vice versa um and the difference in credentialing rates between men and women resulting in a fairly large number of men being cut out of the mating market ms bull bleep ma 
think lower level regime functionary won't date Xbox basement boy. Ms. Bull bleep MA won't date Xbox basement boy. There's a lot of truth to that. That 1.3 probably also consists, that's the sort of functioning real underlying Anglo-Welsh fertility rate, probably also consists primarily of, primarily of children of the up underclass and not of the middle and upper middle classes. So what is being produced is probably not of great quality either. Carl responds, no God, no kids. The strongest correlation to fertility is religious observance. First words from God to man and woman per the book of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, I've done all this in America. It's so frustrating to hear lines you used in a best-selling book 15 years ago. Uh, I'd say, you know, the old go forth and multiply there and uh, all kinds of people, prime ministers, princes, presidents. I said this the other day, a guy who's now king. They all had uh, wanted to hear more about this from me. And they, so I got all these invitations to uh, uh, to the chancelleries of power and then nothing happened. Uh, Carl continues, if you're a secular modern virtue signaler who believes nothing is objective and the name of the game is to die with the most toys, why would you invest in having children? That's an important point. Uh, all societies need a transcendent meaning to life. And I know we have people say, oh, I'm an atheist. I'm an Atheism is like Afghan translators and Haitian refu refugees. It's all about the numbers. A, a, a developed society, a civilized society can withstand two, three or four Afghan translators. When you've got a quarter million Afghan translators showing up, uh, then it becomes an issue. And that's exactly the same with atheists. An atheist, and we know this every any honest atheist like Hitchens uh, or uh, the other fella would uh, would would if they're honest admit this that an atheist is uh, is secured in a Christian society his atheism is protected in a Christian society in the way that it is not in an Islamic society and a lot of these so-called atheists are going to be happy to convert to Islam in order for a quiet to have a quiet life. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. Kings arrested, prime ministers assassinated, and foreign ministers at the bar. It's October 1921. A hundred years from today. World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues and then some. As we have reported, the League of Nations this month reached a decision on the division of Upper Silesia between Germany and Poland, but did not make public the details of its award of some Silesian territory to Warsaw. Nevertheless, panic ensued in Germany at the potential loss of an industrial heartland, and the German mark has plunged by 25% in currency markets, while prices have soared in German shops. Chancellor Josef Witt and his cabinet have resigned, but President Friedrich Ebert has invited Dr. Witt to form a new government on condition he retained Walter Rathenau as Minister of Reconstruction. The Prime Minister of Portugal has been assassinated, along with the Republic's founder and first president, by monarchists in Lisbon. Prime Minister Antonio Granio 
and former President Antonio Machado Santos were murdered after their homes were breached by angry mobs. The Minister for the Navy, Jose Carlos de Maya, was also killed. General Manuel Maria Coelho has been sworn in as Prime Minister, the fifth so far this year. The last Habsburg emperor's attempt to restore himself to his Hungarian throne has ended in failure. Emperor Karl of Austria, or King Karoy IV of Hungary, and his empress Zita landed on a plane from Switzerland near the town of Sopron, formerly Odenburg, and met up with Hungarian army loyalists. They marched to within five miles of Budapest, and several news reports suggested the king had overthrown the regency of Admiral Haughty. In fact, it was the admiral who put down King Karoy's insurgency. The king and queen were arrested and are currently being held at an abbey in Tarni. Assassins in Bulgaria have shot and killed Alexander Dimitrov, the kingdom's minister of war, in an attack on his motor car in an ambush near the resort town of Kustendil. Three other persons, including the minister's chauffeur, are dead. But sometimes mother doesn't come to. Earlier this year, the late King of Montenegro's son, Prince Danilo, renounced any claim to the throne. Now his mother, Queen Milena, has also taken leave of state affairs and withdrawn her recognition of her deceased husband's de jure government. As a result, the Kingdom of Montenegro is now dissolved and, per the agreement of three years ago, will be formally absorbed into the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. The American ambassador to France, Myron T. Herrick, has narrowly avoided assassination by letter bomb, the package containing a Mills bomb, a British fragmentation hand grenade was delivered to the ambassador's residence marked personal but his valet Lawrence Blanchard loosened the wrapping and being a former British soldier recognised the sound of a spring and the whirring characteristic of a grenade. He hurled the package into an empty room but still caught a piece of shrapnel in his leg. With all this violence across Europe it is heartening to know that peace talks between His Majesty's government and Irish Republican revolutionaries are underway in London. Well, heartening, except for the news that following a tip-off, German police in Hamburg have discovered a ship in port laden with weapons and bound for Ireland. In the United States, the prohibition on the sale and consumption of alcohol is now well established, except that is for medicinal purposes, uh, which are increasingly numerous. 
The Senate is presently considering a bill passed by the House of Representatives that would ban beer from being prescribed as a medicine. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon has announced new restrictions on the prescription of alcohol for medicinal purposes. Doctors will be free to prescribe up to two and a half gallons of beer or two quarts of wine for as often as necessary, but whiskey and other alcohol will be limited to one pint, no more often than every 10 days. Esteban Gilborges has resigned as foreign minister of Venezuela in order to move to America and become a lawyer. It is a sad state of affairs when being a senior cabinet minister in Caracas is not competitive with being an ambulance chaser in Chicago. A new photo play, The Sheik, starring Rudolph Valentino and based on the sensational novel by Edith Maud Hull, has opened in Los Angeles to sell out crowds and a delirious public reaction the picture business has never seen. What's more exciting than a sultry Arab lover? A, quote, bread toaster with automatic bread ejection. An Iowa man called Charles Streit has invented such an apparatus and received a patent for it from the U.S. government. Over there, in a moving ceremony at Chalon en Champagne in France, the man who will lie in the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery has been selected from four unidentified persons among America's war dead. Following a similar selection for Great Britain's unknown warrior last year, U.S. Army Sergeant Edward Younger was tasked with choosing one of the four caskets and placed his flowers on the third coffin from the left. That coffin will now be coming home from over there. The last German kings are taking their leave. Following the death of King Wilhelm of Württemberg earlier this month, King Ludwig III has died while in Hungary. His family ruled Bavaria for 738 years until the day after the armistice, November the 12th, 1918. 
King Ludwig was 76. And that's the way of the world, October 1921. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Mark Stein's Last Call. Just a couple of weeks ago on our Song of the Week, we featured three lasting songs from a flop show by Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley. And again, just a couple of weeks ago on the Seven Aid Radio edition of Stein's Song of the Week, we explored his song Goldfinger in conversation with Leslie Brickus and other interested parties. Yesterday, Tuesday... Leslie died in his sleep at his home at Saint-Paul-de-Vence in the south of France. He was 90, so he had what we call a good innings. Quite aside from all his songs and shows with Anthony Newley, he had a great catalogue on his own or with others, starting with My Old Man's a Dustman, If I Ruled the World, If I Could Talk to the Animals. Uh, He won an Oscar for that one. Uh, There will be more to say about Leslie in the days ahead, but here he is talking with me about an unlikely pop hit from a flop film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He got a number one record out of it, mainly, as I suggested to Leslie, because all the kids thought it was about narcotics. My uh, cousin uh, at his school, uh, everyone liked it in his schoolyard because they thought it was uh, vaguely to do with drugs, so they thought it was a naughtier song than uh, the people could could read all kinds of Oh, yes. I mean, uh, we, we did find out in due course after we'd written it that, that the Candyman did have a second meaning. And we didn't think that that would be the song to emerge. And indeed, it did not emerge at the time of the film. Mm. Sammy Davis's recording emerged the year after because he had a new contract with MGM. And Mike Kerb, who produced that first record, was determined to make it succeed. And it took months to claw its way up the chart. And it suddenly took off in the summer when the kids came out of school and became a very big hit. Too late to do the film or us any particular benefit, though the film has done well and, as you know, it's kind of become a little cult movie. And indeed, Candyman was appallingly done in the film. A non-singer, an actor whom I met um, (laughs) years later, about three years ago, down at Chichester, said to me, I am the actor who created the Candyman. And I said, so it was you. Isn't that there's a story that uh, Anthony Newley was so offended by it that he offered to uh, play we, the part? It's true. No, we, we saw it. They, they said to us, David Walker and his people, they said, we have another Mary Poppins. So we went and looked at it. Um, and um, Tony and I looked at each other afterwards and I said, why don't you do the game? And the idea was it's one day shooting, you go back into the sweet shop and just do that one scene, but they wouldn't spend the money. And, and, and how do you feel about the, uh, the Sammy Davis films? Really? Well, I mean, it's very hard to argue um, with any song that uh, does as well as that one. Um, it's, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun version of the, of the record. I think it's, um, it's about as well done. I mean, I don't think The Candyman is that fabulous song. What kind of candy do you want? 
sweet chocolate, chocolate malt, candy, gumdrops, anything you want. You've come to the right man because I'm the candy man. Who can take a sunrise? Sprinkle it with you. Cover it with chocolate and a miracle or two. The candy man. He mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. Makes the world taste good. Who can take a rainbow? Who can take a rainbow? Wrap it in a side. Wrap it in a side. Soak it in the sun and make a groovy lemon pie. The candy man. The candy man. The candy man can. The candy man can. The candy man can. He mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. Makes the world separate occasions that they were just a smidgenette irked at the way not Sammy Davis Jr., but his backing singers, the Mike Curb Congregation, blew the triple rhyme. Uh, Satisfying and delicious. Talk about your childhood wishes. You can even eat the dishes. As you heard, the chorus there sing delicious twice. Uh, Briggis and Newley are British, and Roald Dahl's story is British, based on his childhood memories of the rivalry between Cadbury's chocolate and Roundtree's, and no one in British English talks about candy. Uh, So I asked Leslie why he hadn't called the candy man the sweet shop man. What about, though, something like candy man? I mean, because it does seem, you know, that is an American uh, term, candy. I don't think many British uh, children... That's, that is, man doesn't sound quite as good. No, is, but, but is it because it doesn't sound quite as good? Or, or when you're writing, do you think, 
Well, if we've got one eye, if it's an, you know, an American... Uh, no, it's just um, the phrase, the can be man. Yes. You know, there's an yeah. internal rhyme in the phrase. Uh, it just seemed a natural phrase to use. We just looked at all the different things and we knew that the film was being made basically for the American market. Leslie Brickus on his number one hit, The Candyman. Leslie was a very kind and generous man. He introduced me to a lot of people, opened a lot of doors for me. Sammy Davis, Liza Minnelli, Jackie Collins, Joan Collins. And when he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, he was sweet enough to ask me along as his guest. It was, as I recall it, uh, what I think of as a characteristically New York blend of glamour and fiasco. We met at Liza's pad and the car service never showed up, of course. And the thing was being televised live, so Leslie and Liza had to be there on time. And so we wound up on the street with me flagging down one of those god-awful yellow cabs. And then me, Liza, and Leslie's wife, Evie, all wedged up on the back seat of those awful so-called taxis. And Leslie up front with the driver who was pumping the hippity-hop out at full volume. But we got there in time. We got there in time for a magical evening. I send my condolences to Evie, and for all of his big hits, we will try to play a few of the ones that got away in the days ahead. Maybe starting tomorrow on our Thursday Clubland Q&A, when I'll be taking your questions live around the planet at 11am North American Eastern Time. Later today, join me for episode 18 of Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey in Tales for Our Time. Stay safe, stay free, and in honour of a man who wrote three of the best Bond songs, Goldfinger, You Only Live Twice, and Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, here's the 007 version of our outro. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.